Praise God. Good morning, Christ Chapel. Welcome. How are you this morning? Good greetings to West Campus and South Campus, Converge, Internet Campus, The Hive. Uh, we love you all. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. You're going to need your Bibles. So grab your Bibles, hard copy, digital, whatever you got. There should be one in the venue you're at. And uh, we are going to jump into the first 11 verses into, uh, into chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, as you're flipping there, let me tell you a story. I don't hold this against me. I grew up in the Dallas area. My wife and I both did. And, uh, and in the Dallas area, um, whenever we have the fair, right, the State Fair of Texas happens in Dallas. And so in the public school system, uh, we got a day off. So once a year, it was called Fair Day, and Fair Day would roll around, and school in the, in the district, in DISD and Garland Independent School District, they canceled school, and they encouraged everyone to go to the fair in, in Dallas. And it was Fair Day, and it was a big deal. In the Fuquay family, we, I, uh, have instituted something called Unfair Day. Unfair day is something that I realized was needed in, uh, in the life of my two boys. I have a five-year-old, Miles just turned five, and Charlie will be eight in about a month and a half. And during um, quarantine, I realized we need an unfair day because I'm surrounded by these two amazing boys who I love so much. My wife and I adore them. They're incredible kids, but they are sinners. Uh, they have wicked, inherent, sinful hearts inside of them. Uh, and I realized that more and more. Uh, and, and one of the things that was a constant theme in their life as kids is this idea of like, well, that's not fair. Charlie got more snacks than I did. Or Miles got to pick the last show. And it's not fair that I should be able to pick this show now. And all of those things. And so I implemented uh, Danielle. I implemented Unfair Day. Danielle's uh, requirement is that it is always on a day that she is not home. Uh, my wife, because it's miserable. Uh, and so we had an unfair day this last week, actually, because she was scheduled to, to be out uh, of town or be out of the house uh, for, for the evening. And so I thought, okay, this is fair day. So we were talking it up and, and getting excited about it. And it's funny, my boys really do get excited about unfair day, which is weird. They're just lambs to the slaughter. And so what, what I do is I just create lots of scenarios that pitch unfairness, right? And we just celebrate, yeah, things aren't fair. Like that's a part of life. Right? And so little things like screen time, disproportionate, maybe bedtime, maybe snacks. And so uh, this past week when I did it, I took some pictures. And so I'm going to show you uh, some of Unfair Day in the Fuquay household. Uh, bubble wrap. Bubble wrap is a huge thing in the life of a five and an eight-year-old, right? Bubble wrap is one of the coolest things ever. So I got bubble wrap. However, I distributed it disproportionately. There it is. And here's the reaction. Miles was not excited about that. Uh, honestly, though, it was, it, it, it secretly, uh, I would never tell him this, so don't show him this sermon. It secretly bummed me out uh, because Charlie actually shared his bubble wrap with Miles, which just shows you how great my kids are. Um, and he shared his bubble wrap with Miles. And in my, in my head, I was like, no, this is ruining my illustration. Uh, okay, also, I got them gifts, guys. We do it up big, guys. So I got them gifts, equal size packaged gifts um, there with, with equal amount of wrapping paper in them. Uh, Miles opened his first. There it is. It is a remote-controlled Shark shark Strike RC, um, and it's incredible. It's got chomping action. It's a really, really great toy there. He loves it. It was a big, big open for him. Uh, Charlie got... Literally, I looked through every car at Target. That is the lamest truck I could find, possibly. <laughs> 97 cents, um, 
Just for disclaimer too, I don't normally buy my kids that big of toys. It was Miles' birthday week, and so I just stole one of his toys and let him open it earlier, so he had one less present. Um, but check this reaction out. This is, there they are. There's Miles enjoying his RC, man, going to town on that thing, and Charlie. Unfair, right? Okay, last one. I'm gonna do one more, okay? One more. <clears throat> this is good. This was actually the last one I did for the evening because, I mean, it was full meltdown mode after this one. So they ate dinner, good job eating dinner, ate all their vegetables, all that stuff. Charlie gets ice cream, right? They're sitting there waiting. They're getting ready for their, their dessert. Ice cream, drumstick. We got a box of them in the freezer um, that I had happened to purchase uh, for Unfair Day. And then Miles, <laughs> broccoli, man, just raw broccoli. <laughs> Look at Charlie's reaction. You just see the sin. There's Charlie, right? Uh, living the best life possible. And Miles there. <laughs> Got to celebrate the unfairness of this. Well, there they are, the evolution. Okay, this is how it ended. That's how it ended. Does that make me a bad dad? Pro probably it does. Very potentially, uh, it does. Um, before you call CPS on, on me, um, here's the thing. I want my boys, I want my boys to grow up unfair. This idea of what is fair and I have to have what's fair and you took something from me, that is something that doesn't go away when you're a five and eight-year-old. That is something that unfortunately oftentimes we don't grow out of. We grow into in deeper, deeper, much more destructive ways. And I want my boys to grow into men who can identify that and identify it as a lie. And identify it as something to say that is not, that is not the reality we always have to live in. And we have seen grown men and grown women destroy relationships and marriages and companies and churches divided over this idea of what they have, I need, and, and it's not fair that I should have this, I should want this, and this battle of fairness is huge, and it is, it is in all of us, it, it is in my soul, and I have to wage war with that. It's in our church, in the church, in, in our country. This idea of fairness is a dangerous, dangerous thing if that idea of fairness becomes an entitlement. And it was happening in the Corinth church too. In the first century church in Corinth, it was there and it was on display for the world to see. What's gonna happen uh, today as we study this passage is we're gonna see uh, Paul zoom into a very specific issue. And that's kind of what's happening in the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you remember, it kind of starts with these very general principles and calls and gospel uh, and how the Holy Spirit works in this, and kind of this general idea. And then he starts getting into some specific case studies. Last week, if you remember Ken, there was a very specific case study that he was addressing that, that Ken unpacked had a much deeper heart issue behind it. Today is the same way. There is a specific thing that Paul is going to say, this we've got to address. But I want you to stay with us because it applies to everybody in this room. You might hear what Paul is calling out here and say, I don't know if that applies to me. It applies to us. It applies to us, and the solution in verses 7 through 8 is beautiful and applicable to all of us. And so that's where we're going. The passage kind of breaks down the first half, 1 through 7, and then 8 through 11. And so I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 uh, to us. So if you've got your Bibles, read along, and we're going to look at how Paul zooms in at the beginning here of this specific issue. When one of you has a grievance against another one, 
Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So much to unpack here. Uh, so much to unpack here, and we're going to take this a bite at a time, and we're going to slow down and really, really chew on, on what Paul is saying in these seven verses, um, because what we're going to see is a, a, a very clear command that he gives believers here. First, I want to unpack the, the etymology the, of this word grievance, right? The idea of grievance, and very, in verse one, when you have a grievance uh, against each other, that word, that Greek word is pragma, right, which is the idea of a case or an offense against someone else. You're in opposition to someone else. And so if I have a grievance against you, if I have a grievance against somebody, it's that I have an issue with something that you've done, uh, maybe something that you believe, uh, some, something that I've, I've heard. Um, it's, it's not inherently a legal issue, but what's happening in the context of the church here is they are taking those grievances and those personal grievances and they are dragging them into the court of law in Corinth. And they're making these personal grievances, these legal issues to be, to be ruled on by a judge or an arbiter uh, there in Corinth. And that is completely unacceptable to the Apostle Paul. And so what we're going to dig in is we're going to see why this is unacceptable. Right? We're going to see why. And also then in the later verses, we're going to see, okay, how do we navigate it? Right? But this command is clear from Paul. He says, stop. Stop taking your grievances and dragging them into the public court. Christian versus Christian. Stop it. Why not rather suffer wrong, he says, right? Why not rather be defrauded? It's already a defeat if you've taken it before the public court. Because the principle here behind what Paul is teaching in chapter 6 is this. It's that we are called to surrender our grievances in front of the non-believing world. We are called to surrender our grievances against us in front of a non-believing world. That's what Paul is making pretty clear here. And I'll get to how in just a minute in verses 8 through 11. But I want to spend some time really understanding why. Right? Why would we lay that down? And there's, there's two reasons that pop out of these first seven verses. And the first is due to our authority as believers. Right? We've been given this authority, it would appear through this passage, that we have an authority as believers to walk in a certain way, to walk in a confidence, to walk in authority that makes this so radically inappropriate for Paul. Right? There's a, here's what he says in verses 1 through 4. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And notice something really interesting. At the beginning of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, this is fascinating. I I studied this passage for a couple of weeks, and honestly, it was just this past week, uh, I was meeting with some other pastors who were speaking into it and sharing some observations that they had seen, and I totally missed this right in front of me. There's, a, there's this rhetorical device that Paul says, if you notice how verse 2 and verse 3 start, he says, or do you not know 
You remember, surely you know, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And then here it is again, verse three. Remember this rhetorical device he uses. It's gonna come up again in a really important way. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing? Uh, that idea of do you not know is this idea of like, can you remember? Are, are, you, are you understanding? Do you remember what has happened? Surely you know these, these in, incredibly important pieces. And we're going to see that same rhetorical device show up at the end in a really important way. So hold on to that. Now, one of the things he says is this idea of saints, right? That we are saints who are to judge the world and we are to judge angels, which if you're like me, you read that, I'm like, okay, I gotta go dig into some commentaries. What, is it, what does Paul mean when he says we are to judge angels? And what this is a reference to, uh, this is a reference to this very real eschatological reality that we are stepping into. Eschatological being an obnoxiously large word for the future things. The future things that we as believers are called to step into, a part of the reality of if you are in Christ and you are a believer, there is a part of your future where you will stand and you will be judge over angels. And that's, uh, that I, we don't exactly know what that looks like, and commentaries have all different kind of versions and views of that, but it's a reality here in Scripture, and it's important. It's incredibly important that we know that, that we remember that. Oh, did we, did we not know that we were going to do that? Because what it does is it shows an authority that our Creator, our God, our King has given us. For the Corinthian church, they have the Spirit of God in them if they are in Christ. And, and if they have the Spirit of God, then they should have discernment. This Spirit that should be able to help them to discern matters of life and matters of conflict. A discernment that's available to anyone in the body of Christ. And what are they doing? They who have been given this supernatural discernment from the Creator of all things can't discern between brother to brother. And so they bring between a lost and blind world to say, you discern for us. They are missing their authority. It's an issue because they're not walking in the authority they have. Um, if, I, if I were to take my car into the shop, I take my car into the shop and let's say it's smoking and it's making a weird rattling noise. I'm not sure what's going on. It's been making some weird noises. So I'm like, okay, this is way out of my depth. And so I take it to the shop and I they pull it into the bay, and I, go, I sit, and I look at magazines in their waiting room, and then they say 30 minutes, two mechanics, the two head mechanics walk into the, the waiting room of the auto shop, and they're arguing, right? The two head mechanics are arguing, and they pull me into their argument and say, hey, hey, listen, okay, he thinks it's a belt issue and that your belts are loose, but it can't be a belt issue because I think it's a carburetor. And there's no way it's a carburetor issue because of this. And they start arguing and they start asking my opinion of like, do you think it's a car? Well, what about this? And I think that, and they've been under my hood looking and, if two mechanics walk in and they start arguing of what's wrong with my car and dragging me into the argument and asking me to decide between the two of them, they, they, I would lose a ton of respect, right? They are the ones who should be the experts. They're the ones who literally have the manual of what's under the hood of my car. The, the designer of the car has given them the answers and the manual and they can't sift through it and they're bringing me into it? That's not... That's not my gifts. That's not what I'm called to do. I haven't spent that time. That's what's happening here. The church, we've been given an authority. We've been given a manual. We've been given the spirit of God to discern. And in Corinth, they were dragging their issues in front of a lost world. And 
We shouldn't. We can't because of the authority we have. And here's the other reason. The other reason is for the sake of our witness. For the sake of our witness, for the sake of their witness here in the time. Here's what Paul says. He says, I say, to you, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbeliever. To, to have lawsuits with any, with at, at all, with another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer shame? Why not rather be defrauded? It is to your shame. The context of what's happening in the First Corinthian church is they are literally dragging them into the public square. These two individuals, the two parties who are in the church, believers, one has wronged, probably legitimately wronged another, and they can't settle that disagreement. They can't settle that dispute. And so in the public square, they bring that fight and they bring that argument. Now, we know that outsiders will, will know that we're disciples by how we love each other. We're told that in Scripture. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, you'll, you'll know them by their fruit in reference to false prophets. And if they really have the Spirit of God, they're going to have fruit in their life that you should be able to say, wow, there's, there's fruit of the Holy Spirit there. There's something different there. But here, they're putting on display fruit that is not good. Fruit that's pettiness and divisive and bringing up each other's wrongdoings and each other's sins in front of a world that's watching. I, I want to be real clear too. Give a little caveat. I think this is important. Um, let's keep in context what Paul is saying here and the challenge he's giving. To surrender our grievances, this challenge, to an unbelieving world is not saying that lawsuits are inherently evil. Right? I've actually heard, heard this uh, thought before of like, man, anyone who has ever participated in a lawsuit, that is just immediately sinful. And that's really not the context he's talking about. He's not making the argument that lawsuits are sinful in and of themselves, right? In fact, we even know that Paul uses the legal system. Paul in Acts 25, he actually appeals to Caesar. He goes on trial and asks for trial and functionally says, sue me, we're going to take this to the worldly court and sit under Caesar. So, so we know that lawsuits aren't just the issue, right? There's something deeper. There's a deeper principle here of surrendering our grievances because of our authority and because of the witness that's important. And so that's really important that we understand that, that we look at, are we dragging rotten fruit out into the public? And so let's apply this for today, right? Present day, what does this look like? Right, just like all of 1 Corinthians, I think, has just been so remarkably relevant at every chapter. And, and that's just God's word for you. Um, but certainly in this book that we've been studying this summer, it's just, it's so timely. And I think this is certainly no exception. We see it. We see this conflict today, right in front of us. The world we live in. We are living in a fishbowl in a, in a, in a way that no other civilization has ever lived with the amount of access we have to each other and communication and to see into each other's lives. I mean, because of technology, we live in a fishbowl where the world is watching us in an unprecedented way. This nuanced issue of them dragging each other into a public square to have their, their division, this is the world we live in, church. The world is watching us. We take each other to the court of public opinion constantly. It happens, and it is unbelievably accessible, right? Like this device here gives me the ability 
to drag anyone I want into the court of public opinion that I choose, whether it's just the internet or blogs, whether it's emails, whether, however I want to commute, my ability to communicate to the world around me has never, we've never seen anything like this. Social media is a massive platform where the world is all standing around watching us interact in social media with each other, Christian versus Christian. This is so relevant. This is so incredibly timely. Let me, um, let me get real, real practical. Let's just look at the last year. Let's just talk about politics. How, how, I mean, you just feel the tension, like you just feel the tension rise because it's about to get awkward in this room and in, in these rooms, right? And, and why is that? Why, why is it that everybody knows, oh, you don't talk about politics? Why is it that we all internally cringe when I said we're going to talk about politics? Because we know we're bad at this. Because we're not good at this. In a lot of different areas. But man, this last year, the world is watching. I, I felt so convicted in seasons. Um, for me, let me get real personal. There are convictions that I have um, and convictions that I have that for me um, are going to align me to a pretty conservative platform for, for my kind of political bent. And there are things of, because of my convictions that are just going to be deal breakers where I'm just not going to be able to vote for somebody who, who, who doesn't line up in, in the same way as I do on some pretty uh, serious convictions that I have, right? And, and that's where I line up and that's where I am. And there's a lot of people in that camp. I know maybe half of our people or maybe a little bit more than half of our people, but our, our country has a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to lean that way and I'm going to line up that way. And there's going to be some people that I'm just not ever going to be able to vote for because of my convictions. And what do we see happen? Oftentimes, and people I know in, in my life man, got accused of, how dare you? If you vote for this guy, if you line up on this platform, we just started canceling people. Right? How, how many Christians called other Christians, because of their conviction and because of their, their leanings, maybe conservatively, how many people called them bigots this last year, publicly, for the world to see? Oh, that guy, oh no, man, we're going to cancel him. He's a bigot. He must be a racist if he, right? The world's watching that. Surely we can be more discerning, right? Surely the Spirit of God in the body of Christ can give us more discernment. Surely we don't have to drag, surely we can have honest, thoughtful, thoughtful disagreements and, and wrestle with them together within the family. Surely we can do that. Simultaneously, simultaneously, um, there were times where, even for me, I, I felt convicted um, and moved to compassion. Tragedy happens in our country. Something awful happens. People are grieving. Well, man, I'm moved to compassion, and I, I want to grieve with them. I want to pray with them. People maybe are going through things that I don't understand. I want to listen. I want to hear what they're going through. And as a believer in Christ, I want to sit and be compassionate. How many times did that scare somebody over here to say, whoa, getting a little too compassionate? Maybe listening a little too much. We got to cancel them. We got to cancel them. How many times have 
our compassion been accused of woke liberalism where we celebrate secular Marxism? Surely, church, surely we can have compassion, right? Surely we can go and, and sit with somebody who's grieving. Surely we can say, man, we're hurting and that's hard and we're listening. And surely we can listen to people and maybe not even agree. Maybe not even agree with the solution that they would have, but we can still grieve as brothers and sisters in Christ. Surely the body of Christ can look like that. Politically, masks, vaccines, whatever the next thing is going to be. Surely we can show a world that we can still find unity even when we don't agree, even when there's very thoughtful things to be cautious about. The world is watching, right? And we just narrow and narrow the body of Christ. We don't really, but we start chopping off arms of our community. Right? Our ability to, to be offended gets wider and wider and wider, it feels like, over the last couple of years. I mean, our ability to get offended and triggered gets wider and wider and wider. And when it does that, our community gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. Oh, no. These, I mean, we do it with public Christian figures, oh, that guy, oh, I don't know, we're going to publicly cancel that guy. And, we're gonna... and the world is watching, and Paul is saying, stop doing that. Talk about it amongst the body, address it personally. If you see blind spots, if, if there's differing convictions, talk about it, wrestle through it as believers. But we narrow, and then all of a sudden we look up and we, we've created all of these subcategories. We, we do it with politics, obviously. We saw that in a pretty divisive way. I wonder sometimes. I spend a lot of time with young adults in my role here, and I love it, and I care about them a ton. And I wonder so often if, um, that out of the church's fear to not want to lose the next generation of the church in this country, we are yelling really loud, and the world is rolling their eyes. We see it in personal grievances. We see it in theological issues that are secondary, that we love to argue and debate in coffee shops and public forums. Um, we, we don't just do it on social media, too. We, we gossip, right? It may not be a social media thing for you. This might, you might not be involved in any lawsuits. You might not be involved in any social media platforms. And yet, still, we could say, oh, did you hear this? And what do you think he really meant? And what do you think the ulterior and that guy's there? And this girl's over here, and, and we talk about it in unhealthy ways, and the world is watching. Personal grievances. People have legitimately wronged us. Legitimately wronged you. Do we deal with it in the narrow, godly, biblical path that he's given us? Or do we air it out for the world to see so that that person can be put in their place? Because it wasn't fair what they did. And we got to get justice. This has to be justified. We're called to be different. That's what this is saying. We're called to be different. We're called to surrender our grievances oftentimes when the world is watching. So how do we do that? We understand why. Hopefully, we start to get a glimpse for what's at stake, how volatile it can be. But how do we do that? Well, last week, um, Ken talked about uh, Matthew 18. We've been given a pathway to resolve biblical conflict. And that pathway is not, um, is not just social media, it's not gossiping, it's not uh, sneaking around the back door and explaining or, or, getting, or just canceling somebody and going, it's addressing it. It's going to the person and saying, hey, there is a grievance here. 
It's maybe a grievance of something you believe that honestly offends me and I'm worried about it. That's valid. Or it's a grievance of something you've done to me and that's valid and we need to address it. And so I'm going to approach you. And if they aren't receptive to that, then you bring other believers and we say, hey, we want to do this. And so what happens when you're doing that and it gets hard? So here, here are four ways, right? Hopefully we feel that tension. Hopefully we feel that tension of, okay, this has to be resolved. There's got to be a better way. How do we move forward? How in the world do we do this? We start with this. How we surrender our grievances is we discern. Really important word there. We discern whether the offender is a professing believer or not. It matters. It really matters. And we need to discern, are, are, we, are we having conflict with believers or is this the lost world around us? Um, 1 Corinthians last week, Ken's passage that he preached uh, addressed this specifically. I thought he did a, a really great job of unpacking that. If you didn't hear that sermon, go back and listen to that sermon because this point is directly tied to it. In chapter 5, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Those outside the church, those outside of the faith. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. So this idea of, man, we're not called to judge outsiders. We don't, we don't blame the blind for getting lost. We've seen this, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that in a biblical way. If, if someone is not in Christ, if they don't have the spirit of God, we've seen throughout Corinthians, they are not going to understand and, and, and we get so frustrated that the blind who don't have the spirit of God don't understand and aren't walking the way we're walking. So we walk different and we model it. But we deal with our grievances differently with the world than we do with those who are inside the faith. Second is this. We filter out biblical grievances from personal preferences. This is big. But it's also sneaky because man, I'm pretty good at turning my personal preferences into a biblical issue. I just... I, I, I'm an artist in it, and I can craft it, but, but we, we have to say, okay, is this person a believer? Okay, they are. I'm going to take, take a step forward then with this grievance. Then I say, is this an actual biblical sin issue of, of a belief they have that's just dangerously out of bounds or something they've done that's wrong? And if it is, then we take a step forward, but if it's not, then we let it go, right? Let me give you a, a caveat. There is not a sports opinion that is a biblical issue, all right, guys? Aggies, I'm talking to you guys, all right? I love you. I love you. My wife went to A&M, but uh, I'm talking to you guys, man. Uh, I get it. I get it. Jesus founded that school or whatever it is that you guys teach. Uh, we, we can't take our, our personal preferences and make them these dogmatic biblical issues that we're going to war over, okay? Third is this. Third is this. And, and these two... These two really, um, they kind of get in our business. These are convicting, for me, certainly. Set your goals to see repentance and reconciliation, not victory or vengeance. Set your goal in your conflict. When you bring your grievance to your brother or to your sister, what is your goal in bringing that grievance? Is your goal that you actually want to see repentance and reconciliation in that person? Or is your goal, I want to win? I want to put them in their place. I want to win. I want to get vengeance. I want to make sure they know they were wrong and I was right. And that's huge. This is huge. You've got to have an insightful level of maturity that you can be introspective and ask the Lord, Lord, what is my real goal here? Even in the most severe church discipline case that I can think of in the New Testament, 
what we talked about last week in chapter five. A, a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And it was this very uh, obvious, abhorrent sin. In chapter five, verse five, Paul tells them, I mean, about as bad of church discipline as you can get. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's pretty severe, right? Just and severe. But look at this. What's verse five say? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Even the most severe case of church discipline, remove this guy so that his soul will turn him over to Satan so that his soul can be saved. Even the most severe case of church discipline, the goal was still repentance, reconciliation. Maybe there's always boundaries. Maybe there's obviously always consequences for sin. But man, is our goal to see people change and come or is our goal to win and defeat and squash? That's huge. And that is gonna directly tie to our posture. We gotta check our motives and we gotta check our posture. So align your posture with Christ's humble grace. That's how we navigate this. We align our posture when we're navigating this in front of the world. We ask these questions and then we get to this place of, okay, I think my motives are right. It's a believer. It's a biblical issue. I don't want to just turn a blind eye on this. What's my posture? Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul, to that church, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's our posture. That's the posture Christ wants us to witness with, to handle our conflicts with. When we are navigating this narrow road of godly conflict and doing it right and doing it biblically, that should be our posture. That is hard. That is really hard to do. That is really hard to do if we're honest. So when we struggle to surrender our grievances, would we reflect on what has been surrendered by our Savior? Right? When, when we get to that place where we think, man, we cannot do this. I can't. I, this person wronged me. This is unfair. Would we reflect on what Christ has done? Look at how Paul ends this passage. It is not a coincidence that he goes into to what he's about to go into. It is the solution for my heart to be able to surrender my grievance in a biblical way. Verse eight, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother. Hey, look in the mirror. And then verse nine, remember that rhetorical device. Here it goes again, he ties it into the end. Or do you not know, remember, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who... Uh, practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Oh, how sweet the gospel is. We would all find each other, on, we would all find ourselves on that list, right? If, if we were to see that list of, of sexually immoral, idolaters, right? Idolatry, right? E even, even that idea, sexually immoral is just, if we've ever acted outside the bounds of how God has designed sex between a man and a woman in marriage, 
then, then yes, that's a category we've fallen into. Idolatry is anytime we put our hope in anything other than Christ. Anything. But that's, that's all of us. If you've never struggled to put your hope in anything other than Christ, then meet with me and I would like to sit at your feet. Right? Adulterers. And Jesus says that if we've lusted, then we've committed adultery. Thieves. Have you stolen? Greedy. Do you hoard? Drunkards. What, do you cope with substances? Revilers and gossips. And do we... Do we just want to keep this gossip or do we actually approach, approach the offender with it? Swindlers, do we deceive? Have you done any of those things? Yes, some, some of, at least one of those categories. Practice homosexuality and greedy and adulterers, all of these things. All of these things are out of bounds. They're all sin. And the fair price of that is we do not get to inherit the kingdom of God. We don't get to inherit the kingdom of God, and that is what is fair. That's what we deserve as sinners. And that's really uncomfortable, and that's sad, but that's what we deserve. Paul tells us, hey, all of us have done wrong. All of us are wrongdoers. We shouldn't get it. We shouldn't get his kingdom. Do you see what God's word just did this morning? Do you see this? This hard challenge to lay down our, our fights, to surrender those. We didn't deserve what we got. Such were some of us, but we were washed and we were justified by Christ because of the gospel of grace. If you've put your faith in Christ, that is our motivation. We remember that. We dwell on that. He laid down his life for us. Jesus stood on trial, undeserving of the punishment he got. Didn't say a thing while he sat on trial. Was silent as an, as an unbelieving world judged him for sins that were our sins. The sins of the world. Praise God that Jesus wasn't fair to us. Praise God that he wasn't fair. We did not receive what was fair, and that is the best news. Would we stare at that? Would we dwell on that, meditate on that, remember that, and then go out and be willing to surrender the things that we think are unfair at times for the glory of our King and the witness of our God? Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. God, we love you because you first loved us. You do it so well, so perfectly. God, help us as a, as a body of believers to know how to navigate this road of godly conflict. We know you aren't calling us to be passive wimps. God, we know the Apostle Paul challenges believers left and right. We know our Savior flipped over tables in the temple. We know our our. Our Jesus stood before religious leaders and called them brood of vipers. God, we know you're not calling us to just be silent and passive. But you're calling us to navigate conflict and grievances in the world around us and grievances towards us in a way that echoes what you have done for us. God, we need you for that. We absolutely need you for that. So would you remind us this morning the depth of that chasm that lay between us and what you have done to bridge that, and would that be our fuel?
to be able to respond and repent and be a witness to the world that's watching. Always for your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen.